So it is uh, December 18th, 2016. Our message is called Monumental this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis 12. And while you turn there, we have a short video for you that will help set the theme for our message. You can chill the lights. Once was a little boy who stomps on the devil's head. Once was a little boy who stomps on the devil's head. Titus, Magnus, stomps on the devil's head. Titus, Magnus, stomps on the devil's head. Once was a little soldier who did what Jesus said. Once was a little soldier who did what Jesus said. Titus Magnus does what Jesus said. Titus Magnus does what Jesus said. There once was a little preacher who said what Jesus said. Repent, repent, the kingdom is near. Repent, repent, you sinners and you queers. There once was a little prophet who saw what Jesus saw. There once was a little prophet who saw what Jesus saw. Proclaiming, proclaiming to those great and small. Proclaiming, proclaiming to those great and small. There once was a little apostle who went where Jesus said. There once was a little apostle who went where Jesus said. Planting, planting churches in the land. Appointing, appointing elders by God's hand. There once was a little Aside from being a gratuitous plug for my uh, grandson, we're all going to leave something behind when we leave this world. And what we do now greatly affects that. Now would be the time to start thinking about it. We don't want to wait for a little stone marker to say what the world needs to know about your life. We want that to carry on through our deeds, through eternity. We want it to carry on through our progenitry. We want to leave spiritual and physical sons on this planet. Can you say amen to that? Your life is going to speak a message one way or another. Are you in Genesis 12? In Genesis 12, look at verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. You know, that is an incredible promise. That is a promise maybe above all promises when it comes down to it. The Jewish nation teaches that Abraham was the rock on which Israel was founded. Sarah was also called the rock from which Israel was hewn. Jesus Christ is the rock of our salvation and the rock of our faith. But I say that only to to give you some sense for the scope in which this promise affects the world. 
Our system of laws has been affected by it. Our culture has been affected by it. If you did not have descendants of Abraham stand against a man named Sennacherib 700 years before Jesus, we probably wouldn't have a Western culture today. It is incredible what hangs on this promise. Flip a few pages to the 18th chapter. When you get to the 18th chapter, discover and land on the 18th verse. Abraham, this is an angel speaking. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. Say great and powerful. A great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Do you hear how the promise is being reaffirmed? For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. The promise that has benefited the whole world today was dependent upon the way that Abraham handled his own family. If he directed the affairs of his family well, the promise would come about. If he did not direct the affairs of his family well, the promise would fail and God would have to raise up a replacement. We won't go through it today, but there are generations that failed. The generation that went to the the very foot of the promised land and did not enter in, they failed. Some 38 years later, Joshua 5, 7 clearly teaches that their children went in the land. Their children replaced them. There were 1,870 less children to replace them than there was in the original generation. So the kids did more with less. Their parents were so unfaithful that the children had not even been circumcised. They didn't bear the covenant. The first thing they had to do was rededicate themselves when they got in the land. I do not want to leave my work to the next generation. How about you? In fact, I believe that it's the job of men like Abraham who would follow in his footsteps to lay the foundation upon which your children rise. It is our job to be the ladder that they climb. It is our job to make sure that they get to the destination which is God's purpose for their lives. Can we say that's a sobering thought? When my second grandson was born, we wrote seven verses about his life. We're thinking about how his life will finish from the time it has begun. Can we say much of that hangs on the shoulders of Judah and Sasha? We can't absolve ourselves of those responsibilities. This is true also of discipleship. Do you really believe that we can watch somebody pray in the name of Jesus to be born again and then toss them aside? Not teach them? Not teach them about the structure and order of the Bible? Not model daily life before them? We forget that Jesus said, go into all the nations and make disciples. He did not say make converts. He didn't say build your churches 5,000 strong and less than five inches deep. He didn't say that. He said to go make disciples. And there's a reason. Disciples carry on a name. They carry a name into foreign lands and they thoroughly immerse people in that name. To be able to carry on a name, you first have to have that name. Oh my. When you consider what's at stake, think about men like Noah. What is Noah famous for? What is Noah famous for? 
We say Noah's famous for an ark. But if Noah had failed with his sons, would you know about the ark? You would have no idea there ever was an ark. Because there would have been nobody to get off of it and have children. There would be nobody to father the three segments of the human race. How about Aaron? What is Aaron famous for? The priesthood. You wouldn't know there was a priesthood if 1,500 years of Aaron's sons did not call on the name of the Lord. See, what we do dramatically affects the next generation. It, it is incredible. In fact, we are reaping the benefits right now of generations, two of them before us, that were among the most godless that there has ever been. We like to think about the good old days as good old days. Now, the sexual revolution, the societal upheaval from the 60s forward is killing us today. We're now in the third generation of people who had stupid parents. It's incredible. They taught things like, don't discipline your children, be their friends. They taught things like, you need to be open to everything. And by that, I mean totally closed to God. They spoiled completely a few generations of people. And now as a pastor, I deal with it every day. So that a man is 30 years old and his great accomplishment in life is that he is an intergalactic Xbox assassin. Has no idea how to work. Has no idea that there are absolute truths and convictions upon which the world is founded. Abraham's promise extends as far as Abraham's faithfulness to his own family would extend. Whatever God has spoken to you, it was not solely about you. It was for what would come from the work product of your life. It is time, fathers, mothers, to look around and see whether you're proud of the work product of your life. We're going to look today in the law, prophets, and writings about this subject. Most of our message will come from the section of the Bible called the prophets. So I want to cover a few from the writings just so that we keep it in perspective. Could we put Psalm 45 verses 16 and 17 on the screen? Say there when you're there, if you're going, if you want to see it on the screen, it'll be there in just a second. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. This psalm is speaking about a beautiful bride and her godly husband who is the king. The psalm glorifies the king because he stands in righteousness. It exalts the female because her love is for the king. There was a right godly order there. And says something. This will have an effect upon your children. Your children will be just like the father that you love so much because you have honored him correctly in your deeds. You ever really frustrated with your own kids? You know, it reminds me, my parents were both educators. My dad was a principal. I had the distinction of being suspended, the very first student suspended in the school year from my father's very first year as a principal. That was a very special beating when I got home. And I needed every bit of it and a whole lot more. I am so thankful my father put boundaries in my life. But he once related to me a story. He said, little Johnny and Susie, Keep stealing pencils from the teacher. Have no idea why they are stealing pencils. Daddy brings home all that they could possibly want from work. Your children are the way they are because you are the way you are. They are a reflection of you. An uncomfortable reflection sometimes. And a beautiful, graceful 
uh, expression at other times. Our job is that we produce children that are far better than us, and that shows the very grace of God at work in our lives. There are times when we produce children that are not the men that we should have been. And that's a very sad thing. We often blame it on all of the circumstances around us. We look everywhere except the altar of our own heart. If you have produced awful children, it is because you have lived awfully. The good news is God can do so much with a little bit of faithfulness. My heart's desire is that all of us would be superseded by a generation being raised in this church right now. Little men like Jonathan Ezra. Little men like Joshua. Little men like Titus. Like Elijah. That will not think a single thought about protecting their lives. Not a single thought about the poisonous American dream that our forefathers have given us. Instead, men who would give their all for the kingdom. They would see it as the highest honor to live exactly like the disciples of the first century. They would see it as the greatest task to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Not an afterthought that they write a check to during an emotional moment. And we're going to do it. Do you know why? It's up to us. They will see what we do and they will magnify it because they're going to learn from their parents. Look at Psalm 127. Say there when you were there. It is a cold winter morning for Texas. This would be equivalent to summer in the midst of Chicago. The only reason to live in that frozen tundra is because of the arising church, which is warming the atmosphere around it. Amen. Very thankful for our brothers and sisters there. Wanted to remind you of something Wednesday that we mentioned. Wednesday, we said that our brothers and sisters in Chicago were in trouble in a building project. That they could not receive their next phase of allotments from the bank because they were $26,000 short of completing phase three. And if they didn't get the $26,000, they could neither go forward nor back up. They had no more funding and yet could not occupy the building. A difficult situation. Between Wednesday and now, from one mention in our service, the churches of the One Association have raised $17,000. Look around you. There are no rich people here. It didn't come from a single person. It came in two and $300 at a time in all of the churches. And I want to tell you, we still have a ways to go. If you can help with that, what would it be to have helped build a church in Chicago? Notice we don't raise money to build our church here. We raise money to help build churches there. We are trusting that if we take care of that need for God, he'll take care of our needs when they come. Does that make sense to you? We're teaching our children something. In Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Taking them to Sunday school is not God building your house. Being conscious of God on a casual basis is not God building your house. God building your house is telling you when and how and where to act. Him being the absolute master of your life, showing up in the deeds of your life. I have found out that people say they were raised in a Christian home. And when you examine it, it is almost never true. It's very rare that somebody is raised in a home where they pray three or four times a day with their parents, where they read the word together, where they are watching the struggle that is the fight of faith and have actually learned it 
from their parents. Most times their parents took them somewhere else like a spiritual daycare and said, maybe you'll learn it there because you will not see it at home, but we will give lip service to it. Psalm 127, 2. In vain you rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat. Has your life become all about what you can make, what you can save? Do you find security in the finances that you lay up for your children? Are you in danger of giving them the whole world and watching them lose their own soul? I am so tired of the testimony that says, I don't know what's wrong with little Johnny and Susie. They were raised in the house of the Lord. And now they're backslidden. They hate God. They're mean to everybody around them. But we know there's still a deposit of faith in there. That is not what the scripture teaches. The scripture clearly says that if you train them in the way they should go, they will not depart from it. This is an indictment of those who say it. This is not, uh, it may, you could take it that way and it would be all right with me. You could say I'm simply being self-righteous or I'm actually trusting in the Peshat, the literal word that God says in, in Psalm 22, 6. What are you trusting in? Your own ideas, your own thoughts, because the other side of this verse is if you take care to raise them right, do you know what will happen? They will never depart from that right way. Oh, man, there's nothing more intimidating than being a parent. You have someone's life in your hands. You're pretty sure that you're going to mess up that life. I never met a mom that was confident she was a great mom. They usually need to be encouraged. And it's not my intention to monopolize your fear today. If you are leaning upon the Lord for your decisions, you're already a great mom. If you are making your own decisions, then you're a terrible mom. That's, it's really that simple. There's no gray matter in between. And that is, that's twice as true for you because you're the priest of the home. If you are trusting the Lord and proving it by the way that you act, the promise is for you that your children will not depart. You know, I'm a pastor who is now raising teenagers and has raised teenagers. What I'm telling you is very dangerous. But the Bible says clearly, you are to judge me by my own household. How am I supposed to judge you? See, the fruit of our life is going to say something. This is monumentally important. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children, a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Do you know why? If your sons are born while you're still young, you train them in the fight uh, of faith their whole lives. They get more time with you, not less time. It's a tremendous heritage because all that you invested in them would carry forward into their sons, sons, sons. And this would be like a monument, a memorial to the fact that you lived and did your job. Oh, saints, could there be a more important subject that we talk about today? When you look at Psalm 132, just to your right, We'll just pick a verse out of it, although I would suggest you read the whole thing. Verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. Somebody say forever. forever. Now add to it and ever. Forever. That's a long time. There was supposed to be an unbroken chain 
from your forefathers to you and from you to your furthest descendant of people that called on the name of the Lord and they weren't just saved. They were advancing the cause of salvation all around the world. They were not passive Christians who were sitting as saved from their sin. They were active disciples who made disciples. That was God's will for all of us. It began with his promise to Abraham. Abraham's promise made it as far as us. How far will God's promises in your life carry on beyond you? Will they matter? Or will someone just be waiting when you die to divide your estate? Have you raised such awful children that they'll fight over your estate? My God, do I see that a lot. Have a wicked relationship with wicked people and when they die you do wicked things. Squabbling over who gets mom's china. Can I tell you mom's china will burn in hell just like people that would fight over something like that? Oh, it's so ugly. You know the heritage that we want to leave? It can't be taken by an executor. It can't be stolen by a court. It's the kind of inheritance that has seeped down into the bone. And it has defined the character of the generations to come. I want to talk to you about the rise of a man named Saul. Is that okay? Before we get to Saul, we have to set the stage. So let's go to 1 Samuel. Say there when you were there. Are y'all going to let me preach a little bit today? In 1 Samuel 8, have you ever asked, how do you go from judges to kings? I mean, it's... It's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? We have Moses who leads people, Joshua who follows him. After Joshua, the assembly of the elders, we enter into the time period of the judges. And when there was a problem, a judge would arise. There was a problem, a judge would arise. How do you end up needing, wanting, or requesting a king? I mean, Israel was not found as a monarchy. It was founded as a theocracy. In 1 Samuel... Starting in verse 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. It's a good name. It means Yahweh's God. And the name of his second, Abijah, means my daddy's God, my father God. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, to which Samuel said, thank you very much. And your sons do not walk in your ways. This conversation is just getting worse and worse. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the nations, other nations have. Consider what's happened. A righteous man of God, somebody who served the Lord in excellence in his own life, but fails To pass that character along to his sons causes an entire nation to want somebody other than God to rule them. Wow. Do you mean that the disobedience of your sons could turn a nation? Well, yeah, look around us. We can't tell whether or not gender is something that's fluid or not. Like, maybe it rolls this way, maybe it rolls that way. We literally cannot turn a dog upside down anymore and see whether it's male or female. We have to ask that dog how it feels. Tell me that one depraved generation cannot turn the course of a nation. 
We've lived to see it happen. So that now my 11-year-old little girl cannot go to the bathroom in Target without me guarding. And if you're a daddy and you would not guard that door, God bless you, your priorities are off. It is our responsibility not to just deliver our children safe physically. It is our responsibility to invest in them spiritually. It is our responsibility to see that they go further than we did. Oh, daddy, you should set a high bar. Is mama the spiritual head of your home? Shame on you, dad. You need to take off her spiritual skirt and pick up your biblical sword. There is no reason that a man of God's job should be to sit on a couch and watch football all day. That's what happens when you abdicate your position. And you look out. You will not be happy with the son that is taking care of you in your old age because he won't be able to take care of himself. You didn't teach him how. These sons were wicked. And their wickedness turned a whole nation to ask for a king. Can you think of anything more offensive to God than who they pray to as the Malekolam, the king of the universe, and say, no, we don't want one of your priests. We don't want one of your prophets. We want a king like the nations around us. Look, I'm not going to get into the Donald Trump thing, uh, but I'm watching Christians just giddy with excitement, right? They feel like they dodged a bullet. Now you have a king just like the nations around you. <laughs> you. You don't have a man who's been raised his whole life to love the Lord. You don't have a priest of God. This is no Ezra. This is no Nehemiah. This is a man who will put his wife in Playboy magazine and teach his children to serve at the altar of mammon. But it's better than the alternative. What a sad case that that's all we can say. It's better than the alternative. Like, kill me with a knife or kill me with a spoon. Turn a page. In 1 Samuel 10, look at verse 9. Let's talk the rise of Saul. 1 Samuel 10 and verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. That's a good thing, isn't it? Anybody in here have a heart-changing experience? Okay, so that's about 20% of you. Are the other 80% of you damned and destined for hell? Because that's what the Bible says. And if you can't raise your hand and testify in a church, then what kind of Christianity do you have? If you're a coward in this building, do we expect you to be a courageous conqueror out there? I mean, what an incredible thing. You know, I asked, did you have a heart-changing experience? Well, obviously, it changed the whole world, I can tell. Did you have a life-changing experience? Yes! And if your hand's still not up, at least you're honest. But you do need to know where you stand. By the end of the message, I hope we can do something about that. Because Saul's heart was changed. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came on him in power, and he joined their prophesying. After you had a heart change, did the Spirit of God come upon you in power? Yes. The rest of you are cessationists. Or just very honest. Did the Spirit of God come on you in power? Yes. 
See, if you've had a heart that is changed towards the Lord completely and his spirit is on you in power, it changes the way you speak. It changes the way you live. It changes everything about you. How sad that Christians have reduced a heart-changing experience to a small experience at an altar. They've reduced the Spirit's power coming on you to I one time at youth camp spoke in other tongues. Friends, both of those are selling the experiences so short. I am being saved regularly. I, I am being filled regularly. He is changing the course of my life hourly. And that is producing godly offspring that are producing godly offspring. A one-time experience is not the beginning of being close enough to see you all the way through your life. Saul had a one-time experience. Saul never prophesies again. We never see an inclination that God has changed Saul's heart again. What we do see is that the inevitable trials of life come to Saul, that Saul has tasks that he's supposed to do. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 13. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul is going to war. And picking up in verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? When you look out there and your enemy is too many to be counted... You ever felt like that? Look, the reason I have this spot on my head right here (laughs) is from trying to count the enemies. I I just got to tell you, anxiety, the worries of life, they happen when you have magnified your problems bigger than you've magnified God in your life. Saul is in that position right now. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets and among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. They probably don't put that on their special forces badge, you know. I hide in a cave like nobody's business. I can blend in in the thickets like nobody you ever saw. They had to be pretty focused on the enemy to do that, huh? Are you enemy-focused or are you God-focused? Do you spend more of your time talking about your problems in your home or talking about the greatness of God that is solving your problems? What do you think your children are listening to? Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They literally are like, look, this battle's too tough. We are getting the H-E double hockey sticks out of here. The Jordan was the river they crossed to get into the promised land. They're on the right road, but they headed the wrong way. Yeah, that was supposed to be a one-way street. So was your profession of love for the Lord, a one-way street. Have you been going back on him? If we ask your children, what would they say? You holding fast to the confession? Are, Are you daddy... The most powerful spiritual person in your home because you're the priest? Are you, Mama, the example of the way that the church relates to Jesus Christ? Is that you? What would your children say? Because they probably know the truth and you might not have correctly assessed your life. Saul remained at Gilgal 
And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. If I was a Quaker, I would be upset with that. Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. You know, this is the beginning of a serious problem for him. This is the point at which the altar of Saul's heart is being corrupted. The burnt offering symbolizes the beginning of the reign of fear in his life rather than faith. He has been told by Samuel to wait. The same man that anointed him king tells him to wait. The same man that is the prophet of God on earth told him to wait. But he has looked at his situation and rationalized that the word of God needs to be amended for his special circumstance. You don't know anybody like that, do you? Look, the most indicting thing I hear in spirit-filled Christianity, and I hear it so much, God's really been dealing with me about this. Well, well, good. Well, God's really been dealing with me about this two weeks later. Yeah, amen. Six months later. God's really been dealing with me about this. Will the sun, the moon, and the stars obey him? How long will you stand in your insolent rebellion and testify against yourself that he's making clear to you you must do it and you still haven't done it? Doesn't that make him your partial Lord, your sometimes Lord, your Lord when you feel like it? When he speaks, how long should you wait before you obey? What would be an acceptable time period to tell the king of the universe you're evaluating his wisdom? (laughs) It happens all the time, though. I hear it in this congregation all the time. I say, hey, brother, I thought you uh, were going to be involved in it. Yeah, pastor, I, I know. God's really been dealing with me about that. You think that makes you more or less culpable? <laughs> I'm not mad. I'm very proud of you. I love what is coming out of this church. And let's be honest. If God has been dealing with you and you haven't done it yet, there's a word for that. Sin. James 4, 17 says, The man that knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, that man sins. Do you want to live in sin or live in salvation? Salvation. Well, when God makes something clear to you, you don't wait. You don't debate. You don't moderate. You go and do what he said. Yeah, I didn't mean to do that. But I appreciate the laughter back there, Brandon. That's... It's another one of my sons right there, the smallest. <laughs> At this point that Saul rejects the arm of the Lord in favor of his own, really yucky things start to happen. Uh, before we talk about why or how that happened, let's put Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six on the screen. I meet godly people. Uh, I, even in my own thoughts, this is going on all of the time. We have to fight through this. Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in himself is a... (laughs) I don't feel as if I got the kind of crowd participation on that that we should get. So why don't you say it with me? Doug, you can say it with me too, right? He who trusts in himself is a... Louder. He who trusts in himself is... How about that? Now, how often do we trust in ourselves? We do it every time we're not praying about it. We do it every time we do what we think we ought to do, but we know the Word of God says differently. We are making fools of ourselves. And the only one that can't see it 
is us. So that you can reach the very end of your life, be in a hospital bed with destruction all around you, have people begging you to pray and consider the error of your ways. And you will say stupid things like maybe tomorrow while you go to hell that day. Oh, man. He who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. Mankind doesn't have wisdom. It has to come from above. James says that. The only place for you to get your wisdom is from above. You're either walking as a fool or you're walking in the mind of Christ. This is why as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. If you are making your own decisions about your life, and oh, here's a scary thing, about the lives you've now been entrusted with, you're not just ruining yours. You're ruining theirs. And they will show up for counsel in our office after they've slept with 30 or 40 people. They will show up in our office for counsel when they've been taught that they're entitled to everything and nothing is required of them. They will show up in our office because you failed to raise them. But that's not how it's supposed to be. And that's not how it is for many of you in here. Many of you are diligent to make sure that the things the Lord is teaching you, you're teaching your children. And you're being taught by the Lord every day, so you're teaching your children every day. You can't help but succeed. But I promise you, if you're looking to this culture to help you figure out how to raise children... Consider the examples all around you. God bless Bruce Gender, but he doesn't know who he is or what he is. If you came here to hear something else, you get to hear lies spouted to you on those scrolls of lies called newspapers. You want to see the most wicked print in the world, it's the digital print. Facts don't matter anymore. On the university of Texas campus. Here recently, there was an anti-gun campaign. The young people are laughing because they know what it is. Us old people are sitting around going, okay, well, does that surprise you? They advocated that they wanted sex toys, not guns. People's daughters carried around things that looked kind of like flashlights, but they weren't. By the thousands. By the thousands. A special gun is called a Glock. They had this neat little advertising campaign going for this. And it all rhymed. It was ridiculous. And you know what? That is the exaltation of wickedness in our face. But they are their parents' children. Paid thousands of dollars to send them to UT to learn to become more perverse. They think they're making a profound statement about life. The profound statement is that they're fools. That's the profound statement they're making. This is the generation that will lead us in a few years. They need safe zones. That's incredible. How about this? Jeremiah 17 and verse 5. Are y'all mad at me yet or mad at somebody else? I'll see if I can get you there. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man. What is it if you're trusting in man? Who depends on flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away 
from the Lord. See, if you lean on your own thought, your own understanding, your own finance, your own everything, or that of a close relative, you bring a curse on yourself. So what do you think it's like if you raise your children with all diligence, teaching them that they have to win in every business situation, teaching them that the only way they'll ever be a success is to gather lots of money, teaching them that they have to have the best education that this worldly system can provide or there'll be failures in life. What do you think you're doing to them? You are cursing your own children. It's going, are you saying my children should be stupid? Mine aren't. The Word of God will make you wise in all things. I'm not against education. In fact, if any of you would like to play Bible trivia afterwards, I'll play even for money. Protestants don't usually do that, but I will today. we got a church building campaign going on, y'all. You know, uh, whatever you think about me, maybe I'm not as pretty as the person sitting on your left or right. I'm not uneducated because the Lord will teach you what you need to know. If you teach your children that you have to learn to lean on the arm of man, then that's exactly what they'll do and you're both cursed. Saul apparently... You know, all I know about Saul's daddy is that he was wealthy. That he was of a prominent tribe. Maybe Saul was just not prepared to see the decks decks stacked against him and him have to lean on the Lord. Maybe, Maybe his whole life, he only knew how to operate from a position of strength, which of course is weakness in the kingdom. Let's pick back up in 13 and verse 10. Is that okay? You know what? Before we do, let's squeeze one more in there. How about Deuteronomy 27, 15? That way we get a law of prophets writings. Okay? Those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, just rest assured, others do. (laughs) Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of a craftsman's hand, and sets it up in... And sets it up in... Could there be a more secret place than the human heart? See, we don't carve idols anymore. They dwell inside of you. I know the Lord's leading me to do this, but the thing is, is I'll never have a good career if I don't do this. You think that you can choose your path and it's going to be a success? There's not one, but two Proverbs dedicated to that thought. There is a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to death. But I'm pretty sure that you'll be the exception. See, when we are self-governed, mankind doesn't do very well. I mean, have you read a history book? I mean, anybody? You tell me what what nation ever self-governed itself in perpetuity. They they all end in the same way. Somebody gets assassinated, a war happens, there's terrible, terrible things. The kingdom of God will go on forever and ever because his reign is... Is perfect. Let's go back to Saul. So go to 1 Samuel 13 and verse 10. We're going to hear why Saul did what he did. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to meet him. Just as he finished making the offering, just as he finished his rebellion, who arrived? Samuel, the guy he didn't think was coming. You know, you never know how close you got to success if you give up on God. I mean, you'll never know. 
Maybe he was just about to come through for you, but your faithlessness is what stopped it. Oh, that's not what you'll tell your friends. You'll tell your friends some other thing. But you and God will know that you simply didn't trust him enough to do what he said. You know, my life is littered with people that I started with. They got the same kind of promises I did. They should, there should be 50 preachers right now spread out around the United States. A lot of them are counselors. A lot of them have fallen away. Some of them are in the medical profession. A whole bunch of them went into sales because they didn't trust the Lord enough to do what he actually called them to do. And they found some easier way. But I see their post. They still love me. I still love them. I see their post. They're doing exactly what the Lord has led them to do. Well, then the Lord must be a schizophrenic because I was there the day that their hands were laid on them and they were ordained for ministry. I was there the day those words came out. And you know what? They found an easier way. And there will be a monument for that in their life. It will be, I took the road well-traveled. What will the monument be in your life? What have you done, asked Samuel, Saul replied. Well, when I saw the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought... Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. He saw with his fleshly eyes. He thought with his corrupted soul, and he felt compelled in his inner being to turn his back on God. And what did he say he was doing? Making an offering to the Lord. The altar of Saul's heart was corrupt enough to do what he wanted to do and call it God anyway. Do you know who is God in Saul's life now? Saul. Yeah, it's very quiet, huh? It's a good thing that this problem does not exist in our modern time. Or it's a problem for those people over there. No, it's a problem for all of us. And I got to tell you, charismatics are the worst. You're like a windshield wiper. God said. No, 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 no. God said. Which is it? Because I don't think that God's having trouble making up his mind. You know, the sincerity of your conviction is tested over time. But when God says it, he declares the end from the beginning. He doesn't change his mind. Let me ask you, Christian, take a self-assessment for just a minute. Have you done the last thing that he told you to do or is it still remaining undone? You know, the most common things happen in the nicest churches, the most amazing churches. You're failing in the first five responsibilities he gives you, but you're upset that we are standing in the way of your sixth responsibility. Come on now. Do the first thing that he tells you to do, and you know what it will do? Carry you into the next. Amen. Obedience in the big things begins with the little things, yeah. right? It's the employee who is coming in late, uh, checking out early, right? And taking a two-hour lunch that feels most entitled to a raise, always. I don't know why that's the case, but it is universally true in every business I've ever run. Saints, if you, uh, if you will do the last thing that he told you, if you feel like your life is off the rails right now, if you look around and you're just disappointed in where you're at, Go back and take sober inventory of have you done what he has told you to do. Not begun it, completed it. 
and begin dedicating yourself to the first things that he told you to do? You know, you know who Jesus said that to? Like, because uh, you could think I'm making it up right now. He said it to the church of Ephesus. He said, repent. Go back and do the things you did at first. That is how we get regrounded. That's how you stop self-deception. Okay? We get in these terrible little cycles where we talk an awful lot, do very little, and somehow or another God is responsible for the mess that is our life. Okay? Saul got off base because he saw, he thought, and he felt compelled. He could have turned the whole thing just by using his neck. I'm not going to look at the enemy. I'm going to look at the work of God. He could have changed things at the second step. I'm going to take captive my thoughts and make them obedient to God. Even though I see that enemy, God told me in Deuteronomy 20, I would see enemies bigger than myself, but the victory belongs to him anyway. But he didn't do it. He could have done it before it, it, it leaked all the way down into his spirit. And he said, I feel compelled to do this, but I am not a slave to my compulsions. The Spirit of God will help me. But he didn't. He failed in all three areas. You know, that is a yucky thing. This is the moment that the altar, say altar. altar. The altar of Saul's heart was given back to Saul. Prior to this, he was a changed man. A man on whom the Spirit of God rested. Turn with me to Samuel 15. Uh, could we put slide number one on the screen? I want you to see this word. No, that's not number one. That's the last one. Yeah, we're going the wrong way. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> it is after the title slide. So uh, that, that's like seven. Keep, keep going back. Uh, in 1 Samuel 15, 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy them. This word totally destroy is haram, uh, which is our slide after the title slide. Haram is a word that means doom. Utterly destroy. It literally implies an ugly thing. It implies genocide. Totally wipe them out. You're not allowed to leave an animal. It's devoted to destruction. So haram, then, is not something that you can do part way. Say not part way. If haram requires the complete, it indicates the complete and utter destruction... If haram is complete, how much can you leave undone and still have done haram? See, this is an interesting thing. We act like salvation is something that can be part ways. But the truth is, if any part of it is undone, that part remains completely undone. <laughs> Look, have you ever read, uh, we're talking to parents now, have you ever read birth control um, literature? Whether you're talking about a prophylactic or um, some other control, they say things like, you ready? This is important. You young people might want to hear this too. This is 
0.8% effective. If you're in that 0.2%, for you, it's 100% ineffective. <laughs> and you know what you don't know? Whether you're going to be in that small exception or not. Yeah? So when we're talking about some things, partial doesn't really work, does it? Yeah, if you ever go see Baj and tell him you think that you have a small transmission problem, right? Transmissions either work or they don't. It's like being pregnant. You are or you're not. There's no such thing as a small problem. When we're thinking of Haram then, it requires Saul to attack and completely destroy the Amalekites. Look then at uh, verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These he was unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, he totally destroyed. Is that incredible? So how successful was he? He was completely unsuccessful. Because he did not haram, which is what the Lord told him to do. Is, is that, is that thought provoking? Picking up in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. What did God call turning away? When you didn't do what he said to do. See, you have been taught to define your Christianity over and over and over. I didn't sin because I didn't look at porn. I didn't sin because I didn't get drunk. I didn't sin because I didn't get high. I didn't sin because I didn't get pregnant out of wedlock. I didn't sin because I did not. God says you sin when you don't do what he said to do. He takes it for granted that you know it's sin to do things he said not to do. He calls it sin in his Bible when you fail to obey him. Well, I think I've been a pretty good person all my life. You know what that would be evidenced by, friend? The things that he told you to do and you've now been brought to completion on. You know, everybody who's ever said that to me, I think I've been a pretty good person all my life. I always tried to do what's right. Can't tell me anything that the Lord told them to do and they successfully completed. It is the uh, monumental failure of the Christian church that we allow this to go unchallenged. So I'm challenging it today. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all night. What was Samuel's response when he realized Saul wasn't doing well? He was hurt. You know why? Not only have his sons not done well, now the king that he appointed has not done well. Man, it hurts to be anointed but to be unfaithful in discipling other people. I see it all of the time though. You see a pastor do great for about 20 years. Then his church began to die. Mostly because he was scared to death someone might actually take his church over one day. Which is what's supposed to happen. And he held onto the reins so tight that God took it away from him. Do you know that there are books written about that? The 17 year reign of the dictator pastor. Because it takes about 17 years for somebody to start a movement, draw people to it, then get really excited. It reach a height of, of its uh, success. 
become self-infatuated, compete with the very people you were trying to raise up and kill the work. I can't tell you how true it is. I mean, you see it everywhere because we don't know how to relate to our sons rightly. We, uh, we think that they'll just kind of raise themselves. And if we raise them, we forget why we're raising them to become better men than we are. And we're disappointed because they're not sons anymore. Way down there, big I and little you. Yeah. It's worth thinking about in your relationships. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. What did he do? Set up a monument in his own honor. So at the moment God is disgusted with him, Saul's pretty proud of himself. This is a monument to his victory. Now, do you call it a victory when you do half of what God said? Do you brag about it? You're excited? Is that your Facebook post for a week because God said something to you and you kind of started to sort of maybe complete a little bit of it? You know what the very first thing that he said to his church as he was ascending was? Go into all the nations and make disciples. Amen. How you doing with that one? Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. Some of the biggest snakes that I've ever met met greet me like that you know oh amen god bless you brother i hate you but the lord loves you i'm gonna talk about you the moment you walk away but while i'm staring at you i'm gonna smile to your face saul jumps right out there maybe a little nervous in security because he feels the conviction of god the lord bless you i have carried out the lord's instruction do you think maybe he's a little defensive here? Do you think maybe he's saying he carried out the Lord's instruction because he most specifically knows that the proof that he didn't carry out the Lord's instruction is standing right there? Oh man, Christians do this so much. It's why we say the Lord's really been dealing with me about that. You're trying to cover over the fact that you hadn't done anything with what he told you. Our children need to see people that are so totally committed to the cause, that it shapes everything in your life and everything in theirs. You know, listen, Samuel's response is classic. But Samuel said, <clears throat> what then is this BS in my ear, this bleeding of sheep? <laughs> yeah, the Hebrew there is bleeding of sheep <laughs> in my ears. What is this lowing of cattle? In other words, what we have is we have Saul raising a monument to his victory on the very day that God is disgusted with him. I wanted to talk to you about that monument. It's slide number two. What the, the Hebrew here says is Saul went to Carmel and behold, he set him a place. The place is an interesting word. You see it? 3027, Yod. That's our next slide. In 3027, a feminine noun meaning hand or strength. This word frequently appears in the Old Testament with literal and figurative and technical uses. Literally, it implies the hand of a human being and occasionally the wrist. 
Metaphorically, it signifies strength or power, authority or right of possession. While Samuel was coming to confront Saul, Saul was out raising a monument to his own arm. I lean on myself and I want the world to know it. This is like the pride of life, bragging about what one has, what one says and does. I mean, he is literally the biggest failure that you can be, and he thinks he's the largest success that a man can be. He could run for president. (laughs) Infatuated with his own ego, Saul was raising a monument to victory while he was standing in total abject failure. God was disgusted, but Saul was happy. (laughs) He placed his prerogatives above God's imperatives. What did he destroy? Everything that was weak or despised. What did he fail to destroy? What was best and good? Isn't that the altar of Christianity today? Dear God, don't put a fat guy on your worship CD. When the video comes out, I mean, everybody's hair's got to be perfect. We need 35 lights in some Barbie doll singing that has been professionally made up so that we can all properly worship God. Y'all, this is idolatry in the house of God. It is sickening, disgusting. The fact that we have a handsome worship leader is purely by accident. You know what is really funny? His Matt says, no, no. I mean, the Bible does say dark am I and lovely. But, 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 Matt, but Matt says, no, no, no. And I was talking about uh, Peyton. <laughs> the biggest issue with Saul here, and the one that I'm trying to draw to our attention today, He ignored the evidence of his failure that was standing all around him. The best of the sheep, the best of everything was there. He saw that as making him a success. I've got the best. We're the the biggest church. We're the best. We've got the best teaching. We've got the best. If you didn't do what God told you to do, those things stand right there bleeding in your ear that you are a hundred percent Failure. You know who's the first to know that? Your own children. Which is why the Bible requires that for a man to run God's household, his own household look a certain way. Children hate hypocrisy. And it's why they abandon the faith in droves when they grow up in ministers' homes. Because their fathers are hypocrites. It's time that we raise a generation that is not. It's time that we raise a generation that's the same in the pulpit and the living room. You know, uh, there are a lot of pastors that would have edited the, uh, the video of Titus because there was a cigar in it. I smoke cigars. I'm proud to smoke cigars. I want to have the biblical debate with you about cigars. I hope afterwards you'll buy me cigars for Christmas. <laughs> I love that Spurgeon smokes cigars. I love that Bonhoeffer smokes cigars. I love that Tolkien smokes cigars. I love that C.S. Lewis smokes cigars. But mostly I like to smoke cigars. So I'm not going to edit them out of a video 
and present to you something other than what I am. That's not an excuse to sin. It's an excuse to let things that are righteous be called righteous and things that are wicked be called wicked, whether you're in the home or the pulpit. Okay? A lot of people don't like that, but that's okay. Uh, they didn't like it when Jesus drank either. And he hung around with whores and tax collectors and was accused of being drunk on Baptist grape juice. One of the most difficult things about Saul's life. We don't have time this morning to go through it, but you should write down 1 Samuel 31. He had a son that was a good son named Jonathan. He was a good son in spite of a really crappy father. And then Jonathan had a brother, Abinadab. And Abinadab had a brother, Malchi Shua. All three of Saul's sons died on the same day. And they were decapitated. That spirit's been around a long time. And then Saul fell on his own sword and died. Saul and his sons died in shame. Do you know why? The altar of his heart was given over to wickedness. And the monument of his life was to a man who worked in his own strength. He ruined his own legacy. There is one son that survived. His name was Ishbosheth. Ish in Hebrew is uh, a man. Ha'ish rots is the first sentence you learn to speak in Hebrew. The man runs. Ha'isha ratza. The woman runs, right? Now you know everything you need to know about Hebrew. Ish means man. Boseth is a, a compound word that means shame. The only son that he had was a man of shame. He was ashamed of his father. And he walked in the same shame that his father did. Oh, man. He reigned for two years in rebellion to David. And then when his kingdom was overthrown, Ishbosheth, he dropped his, uh, a maid dropped his five-year-old son, Mephibosheth, and he was crippled his whole life. Do you see what letting the altar of your heart fall in love with the world does? It creates a monument to your own arm which is cursed and will fail. It damns your sons, sons, sons to have to fight through the garbage you were too big of a coward to stand up to. Happens all of the time. Praise God, David found little Mephibosheth. He set him at the king's table and changed his life. I am just like Mephibosheth. I come from an illustrious line of pagans and sinners, godless men who are undoubtedly burning in hell. It plagues me. It hurts my feelings. I grieve over it because some of them recently. But I am determined that we will raise up a monument that is different for all generations to come. Amen. Okay. Let's do this. Let's take a, a look at Absalom. In 2 Samuel, go to 2 Samuel. Y'all doing all right? Can I tell you that there is a sowed coming for those of you that know what that is? That is just out of this world good. In 2 Samuel 13, We have a terrible event. We have a half-brother rape a sister. Uh, that didn't just go on on Jerry Springer and certain counties in Arkansas. It happened in ancient Israel. That's disgusting. 
And in verse uh, 20, we have uh, Absalom speaking about it. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Notice he's giving good advice here. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. Absalom never confronted the evil. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, uh, Tamar. Certainly this is a wicked thing. But Absalom is doing something very dangerous. He hates the wicked thing and he should hate that. But he is completely silent about it. It's just stirring in him. Two years goes by. He never said anything to the one that was in authority because he had something working in his own heart. You can turn the page. Look at uh, 1332. But Jonadab, son of Shimei, David's brother, said, My Lord should not think that he killed all the princes. Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. What has happened between these verses is Absalom sees that his sister was raped and he, uh, he, he's grieving. And he says, oh, sweetheart, don't take this to heart. You, you come live in my house. So far, so good. Dad was furious and perhaps he could have gone and talked to dad, but he didn't. He didn't go seek out justice with the authority. He kept it as a very private, hidden matter and did not talk to David about it. He did talk to everyone else about it, though. And he told them he was going to kill his brother when he got the chance. Two years later, he gets his brother drunk at a feast and he murders him. Now, I get there's a part of the a uh, redneck boot-wearing crowd in here that's like, right, he killed him. He was a rapist. He was responsible to a king for his actions. He did not consult the king with what should be done. He didn't tell the king what should be done. Instead, he hid it in his heart, waited 24 months, and premeditated a murder. What do you think that did to Absalom's heart? He may have started off being the just avenger, but now he has become something of the murderous line of Cain. You know, to give you an idea where David's heart is in all of this, look at verse 39. And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he had consoled him concerning Amnon's death. David was merciful. He did not want his sons to kill each other. He didn't want uh, Absalom, because he had done a terrible thing, now in killing his brother, the rapist, to to have to leave. His heart yearned for him. See, there's an interesting thing. When your heart does not yearn for your sons, you set out to build things in your own honor. When your heart yearns for your son's success, though, You try to build things that will cause them to live in honor. Does that make sense to you? Consider why pastors have their names on the signs of their church and ask if that's a good idea. Oh, this is the Lord's church. My name's across the top of it, but it's the Lord's church. Oh, no, I'm raising up people to take my place, but their name's not on the the sign. Mine is. 
I'm very proud that I stand here in the 15th year of this ministry. I can't write a check. I can't withdraw anything. My name's not on anything here. The church is completely in other people's hands. I hope to do that many times in whatever is left of my life. We need to create a platform other people can stand on. While we're talking about this in the two years, his own arm in the revenge plot, in 2 Samuel 15, this shows how, how wicked Absalom's heart is now turned. He's given the altar of his heart over to the devil. And it's going to show up in the monumental acts of his life. Are you ready? 15, 1 through 6. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses. Whose arms is he leading on if he provided it for himself? And 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road, leaning to the city gate whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision. Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper. Tell them what they want to hear. Tickle their ears. But there is no representative of the king to hear you. Who is unjust in this scenario? He's saying the king is. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. David, his father, was the rightful king. He didn't ask his father what he thought about the rape. He just hid it in his heart for two years, got his brother drunk and murdered him. His father longed for him and longed for the other son that is now dead. But Absalom, when he returns to Jerusalem, sets about to overthrow the king because his heart is corrupted. And how does he do it? With flattering speech. I can't tell you how many Absaloms are in pulpits in America today. They're appealing to you based on their own vanity. They're telling you that God is unjust and you are just and the people love it. They love it. To them, anything that the Bible says that is an absolute is antiquated. It's outdated. They're evolving on all of their positions because they're hirelings for the masses. But I'm not concerned with those guys. I'm concerned with you. Look at what this does. We have the most extraordinary thing. Absalom goes on and draws a guy to himself named Ahithophel. We don't have time to teach about Ahithophel. But Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. You know why that's important? Because Absalom is not just winning the kingdom away from David. He's seeking out anybody that might share the very same grievance. You know, I don't think my dad handles sexual impropriety very well. Could be because of that whole little thing he had in his own life. Who else was wronged? Oh, Bathsheba's grandfather. Maybe Uriah's father's father. Maybe he'll side with me. And so he goes and he and Ahithophel build a rebellion together against his own father who God had appointed to rule. The advice that Ahithophel gives 
And the advice that the other advisors give Absalom is to be vicious with their father. You go kill him. You know what a warrior he is. We, we need to have sudden, overwhelming force. When we're talking about what is happening in David's camp during this rebellion, you see the heart of a father, though, at least the heart of a good father. 2 Samuel 18 in verse 5. Are you there? The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, three valiant warriors in Israel. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Absalom's out for blood. What is David out for? Reconciliation. Now, there's a monumental difference between these two things. 2 Samuel 14, 27 literally says that Absalom had three sons and a daughter. The sons are not named. The daughter he named Tamar. You know what that is? That's him living in the injustice that has happened. See, his sister's name was Tamar. Tamar is Hebrew for beautiful. And his sister was wronged. And he committed murder. And his life's turned out the way that he has because he's always done the right thing. He was always ignoring the king, though. He never had a ruler in his life. He never obeyed the will of the king. And he raised his own Children in that environment, perfectly justified in his own eyes the whole time. And so now he's at a place where he's in open warfare with the king. The king doesn't want to harm him. The king wants to reconcile with him, but he wants to harm the king. You ever wonder how people end up late in life hating God? How you can talk to somebody on their deathbed and see them snarl and you never saw anything like that before? It's because they're facing the time when all of their excuses are going to be rolled away with the earth and the sky and they'll be left defenseless before the king of kings whom they have defied their entire lives. Can I tell you that is a very sad situation? In 2 Samuel 18, we have an interesting thing happen. Look at verse 12. But the men replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lift a hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man, Absalom, for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in an oak tree. What has happened here is Absalom's men and David's men begin to fight. Absalom is riding a, a donkey and he goes under a tree and the tree catches him by his massive locks, right? He is hanging in the tree by his own hair and David's men will not hurt him because they know the king wants to reconcile. But Joab's like, I got no problem killing this guy. He plunges three spears through his heart. And then all of the men begin striking him. Verse 16. Then Joab sounded the trumpets and the 
troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During the lifetime, his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Could you show me slide six? Absalom's place, Absalom's monument in Hebrew is actually Absalom's Yod. Do you all remember that word, Yod, from earlier? Absalom raised up a monument to his own arm in this place. Let's take our next slide. This is that monument. It still stands today. It's a reminder of a rebellious son who was caught by his own vanity. You know, we don't know how Absalom's sons died. But it's not hard to surmise that Absalom's own bitterness is what killed them. Perhaps they died in the rebellion with the father. Perhaps they died while he was fleeing after Amnon. I'm not sure how they died. I just know that their father didn't teach them and protect them, and it was inevitable. By the way, he didn't want a son to carry on God's name. He wanted sons to carry on his own name. And when they died because of his actions, he rose up a monument to his own arm. It still stands today. And that monument to his own arm does carry his name as a reminder that when you lean on your own arm, you are cursed. Have you ignored the king's commands in your life? Do you do what you think needs to be done regardless of what he says and refuse to do the things he told you to do? Like Saul, the altar of Absalom's heart was tainted. So the monument to his life says a faithless man was once here. Next time you walk through a cemetery, ask yourself, is this a faithful man demonstrated in his actions? Or faithless? Their monuments are everywhere. In Isaiah 19, verse 19. We're going to quickly make a turn to a New Testament and this will come to a different place in your heart. Now that you know what you know, hopefully in a linear fashion, you can come to some conclusions you may not have come to otherwise. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart, say in the heart, in the heart of Egypt, and a monument to the Lord at its border. When you have a monument at your border, it's because you had an altar in your heart. When you have an altar in your heart, what does it produce? A monument at the border. Something changes in the very heart of Egypt that causes a monument to stand at its border. The first thing that you would see about Egypt would be changed forever because something changed in their heart. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt when they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a Savior 
and defender, and he will rescue them. Although Egypt had been an enemy of God, an enemy of Israel, such a profound work happens in their heart that the first thing anybody sees when they enter into the border of Egypt is this one has been saved and been defended by the God of Israel. The monument to their existence will not be that they once enslaved people, will not be that they once built kingdoms that showed their own strength. The monument to their existence will be that they loved God Almighty and that He saved them and defended them. Does that surprise anybody in this room about Egypt? It's not necessarily what you see right now on TV, is it? But God's promise says it'll happen. It turns out that the altar in your heart will determine what the monument of your life looks like. If your heart is something that is totally devoted to the Lord, it will show up in the working of all of your hands. It will leave a monument. The truth is, when we think about Absalom, he left behind a brick monument because he had no sons. How many ministries are doing the same thing? They're leaving behind brick and mortar because they have no sons to carry on their name. David cared nothing for anything other than his sons because they were his monument. See, Solomon would come from David and expand the kingdom further than David had ever taken it. He would take the very materials that David had gathered in his lifetime and build something the world had never seen. It would be Israel's golden age. David's legacy is David's sons. Oh, church, if we could learn any lesson, it doesn't matter how many people we seat here. It doesn't matter how big we get things. What matters is how many sons we raise up that go further than we went. Those that do not have sons build monuments in their own honor. And the church landscape is littered with them. Speaking of landscape, let us go to the New Testament. In Luke 22, I recently heard an anointed son preaching about the Mount of Olives. I was blessed. I've stood on the Mount of Olives a couple times in my life. I've prayed there. I've laughed and joked there. I've asked questions of Jewish rabbis there. I've had good times at the Mount of Olives. And because of that, I could picture exactly where it was. I can think about the path that it takes to get to the Mount of Olives, what you walk through, what all happens. As you come down uh, from Jerusalem, you cross into the Kidron Valley, there are some buildings. You move just beyond those buildings as you ascend to the uh, Mount of Olives and you see Gethsemane. Right there. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. I want to read you about that just for a second. Uh, in verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, say the place. The place. He said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is Jesus' altar moment. He is laying his own will on the altar. He would rather do something else, but he wants God's will more than anything else. The altar of Jesus' life 
is displayed in Gethsemane. The monument to Jesus' life is displayed at Golgotha. He makes his decision here on the altar and he becomes a monument at the border of Israel that tells the whole world, a son of God, a monument to faithfulness, stood here and we killed him. What do you do with him? Oh, this news has so shaken the world for 2,000 years that we wear crucifixes, we have crosses, we do all of those things. And as I was looking at this scenery, show me that last slide. I couldn't help but, uh, one before it. What you see on the right of your screen is the eastern gate in Jerusalem. Well, these little olive trees here you walk through, and that fence is at the Kidron Valley. The building in the center of the screen, that's Absalom's monument. There is a monument to the son who rebelled against the king, was hung in a tree by his own vanity and killed by his own people. And not a stone's throw from that building stands Gethsemane where the son of the king sacrificed his will on God's altar and became a monument to a faithful son that has lasted 2,000 years for us. They're not a stone's throw from each other. And in this room, you might not be a stone's throw from each other either. See, they both were Israelites. They were both sons of David. They were both building a kingdom. But one's altar was corrupted and the other was purified. How's your altar doing today? Jesus walked through the very spot where David's son Absalom was overcome with feelings of injustice and he was hung on a tree by his own vanity. Jesus, to fulfill God's perfect justice, was hung on a tree by his own humility. The spot where Jesus was praying was a stone's throw from Absalom's pillar. Can I give you a monumental revelation I've had recently? I mean, I'm talking life-changing Bigger than I could have ever hoped for. Scripture came alive and spoke to me. Go to Isaiah chapter 49. We are moving quickly towards a close. But if that excites you, then you're probably in the wrong place anyway. In Isaiah 49, the Lord was dealing with me about the need to give my life, to give my will on his altar and what that would do. Isaiah 49, 18 says, Lift up your eyes and look around you. All your sons gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. It turns out that the man of God that invests in nothing other than the kind of sons that he raises up has a monument he didn't have to put in brick and mortar. He will wear his son's achievements like Joseph wore his richly ornamented robe. When you give your life and your will on an altar, you get to wear your sons as a monument for an eternity. That is changing my life. But where this goes is even better. Make a right to Isaiah 54. I'm going to squeeze a sowed in here as we get to our end. 
Look at verse 11. O afflicted city, lashed by storms, and not comforted, I will build you with stones of tur- tur- <laughs> turquoise, your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of sparkling jewels and all your walls of precious stones. Say precious stones. Precious. A city made of precious stones. Say precious stones. Precious. All your sons will be taught by the Lord and great will be your children's peace. There would be a city that would be built of precious stones. In the next verses, your sons will be taught by the Lord. Put 1 Peter 2.5 on the screen. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Sons are still being built into a spiritual house, but it's not us who wears it. If you are faithful, you will wear your sons like a garment for an eternity. But God is also going to wear something for eternity. Revelation 21, 19. It would be nice to put it on the screen. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was Jasper, the second Sapphire, the third Chalcedony, the fourth. He goes on to list 12 of them. You know what's interesting is this angel has said, come, I'll show you the bride of the lamb. And then he shows him a city coming down from heaven. And this city needs no light and it has no temple. Do you know why? The Lord is its temple. God wears the faithfulness of his people like a temple for an eternity. See, what you do in this life it is reflected in the way that your children live. And you wear that for an eternity. And he is no different. He gave you the right to become his sons. And he will wear your deeds for an eternity as the city that's come down from God. Look, as good as that is, as amazing as that is, our last passage, we haven't touched Revelation, the third chapter yet. In the third chapter of Revelation, in verse 11, I am coming soon. Is that still true? Hold on to what you have. Is that still true? Unless your lying weasel theologian has told you you don't have to hold on. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. You ready for this? Saul lost the altar of his heart. The monument to his life was his own arm. So he lost the crown that God gave him. Absalom tainted the altar of his heart with injustice. The monument to his own life was his own arm. So he could not have David's crown. Jesus Christ sacrificed his will. And the altar of Gethsemane became a monument at Golgotha. So he exchanged his crown of thorns for a crown that would never fade. And he's inviting you to do the same thing today. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the house of my God. 
Anybody want to guess that that word is the same as monument? Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God. See, Saul wrote his own name on his monument. Absalom wrote his own name on his monument. But if you are faithful to the end, God will write his name on you. And the name of the city of my God. You'll share fellowship with every other precious stone that makes up his inhabitants. The new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Church, what is at stake is monumental. Most men will only have their name on a small white stone that they have to pay somebody else to mow around and eventually nobody even brings flowers to anymore. You just become food for worms. That's where all of us are destined. I've been burying people at an incredible rate in these last few years and I've got a few more to go, unfortunately. This will make you think about how you live. My own birth father told me maybe tomorrow, just a few months ago, and was in hell before the evening was over. I watched a little girl die of cancer that we raised the first year of her life. Injustice. Terrible. But I also saw my friend Darnell go into the very presence of God in December. When you are gone, your deeds are all that are left that speak of you. What would they say? Because you are surely going to be gone. Despite all man's achievements, we're 100% mortal. You won't be able to keep yourself alive no matter how hard you try. I just came back from an ICU where I urged somebody I love desperately. Please consider your life. The biggest problem with everyone, though, is they're pretty sure they're doing just fine despite the bleeding of sheep all around you. This morning would be the time to take honest stock of your life. Because it's going to be a monument to something. Jesus had to walk right through Absalom's monument. I like to think it probably strengthened his resolve. Will your monument be a box full of bones with a little white stone on it? Or will your monument be that you are a stone in the house of God with his name written on you and it stand for eternity? Because one is food for worms. The other is the substance of the divine. Amen. We're going to stand to our feet. No sermon worth its salt is complete without a call to action. If you receive a revelation in the house of God, that revelation demands a response. I've asked you to think about your lives. I've asked you to think about your children. I've asked you to think about what is coming from you. And if I come back next week, you could say, God's really been dealing with me about that. 
And then a year later, you could say, God's really been dealing with me about that. And all that will get us is more condemned. The real question is, what are you going to do that is different? I say that it begins with the altar of your heart. And the best place to adjust that is the altar in this church. And that if you get the altar right, the monument of your life begins to look right. So I'm not going to beg you to get to an altar. I'm not even going to ask you to get to an altar. I'm going to tell you to do what you must as I pray. But those that stand their ground, despite the bleeding of sheep all around them, and declare themselves victors while God is displeased, you need to know, today we showed that that is no better behavior than Saul. Consider how his life ends and know it's coming for you.